Stay hungry, stay foolish. As always, thank you to our sponsor, Zai. Zai is a global fintech that's building integrated financial services for digital native and non-native businesses. Check them out at hellozai.com. With new technology, constant change and uncertainty, and far-flung virtual teams, getting things done at work is tougher and more complex than ever before. We're in the midst of a collaboration revolution, working with everyone all the time across silos and platforms. But sometimes it feels like we're stuck in a no-win cycle, dealing with an overwhelming influx of asks with unclear lines of communication and authority. Overcommitment syndrome looms larger than ever before. But even amid the seeming chaos, there's always that indispensable go-to person who thrives on their many working relationships with people all over the org chart. How did they do it? Go-to people consistently make themselves valuable to others, maintain a positive attitude of service, are creative and tenacious, and take personal responsibility for getting the right things done. Our guest today reveals the secrets of the go-to person in our new world of work. Based on an intensive study of people at all levels, in all kinds of organizations, he also shows how go-to people think and behave differently, building up their influence with others, not by trying to do everything for everybody, but by doing the right things at the right times for the right reasons, regardless of whether they have formal authority. We welcome the author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, Win Influence, Beat Over Commitment, and Get the Right Things Done, Bruce Tolgan. Welcome to the show. I love the way you make that sound. <laughs> I should bring you with me everywhere I go. It's great to have you on the show. Bruce is uh, used to the Irish accent. And just before we get into that, Bruce, I just want to point out to our audience, I have a copy of your brilliant book, Up for Grabs. Just sign up to the innovationshow.io newsletter and you can be in with a chance of winning a copy of Bruce's latest book, One of Many. Bruce, I said you were used to the Irish accent. That's because you worked over here as a young 20-year-old Bruce back in 1987. Yes, that's absolutely right. And uh, it was an honor and a privilege to uh, live and work in, in Dublin back then. Uh, like you say, I was just uh, just a kid, but uh, boy, I learned an awful lot. And, uh, and I also just spent hours walking around Dublin uh, just and, uh, you know, everywhere I went, it was easy to meet people. So uh, it, it was a tremendous experience. And, um, and uh, I love the Irish people. I, I think I told you my wife is of Irish descent. So, uh, you know, it's all in the family. I found this book. It's useful for anybody at any level in an organization, whether you're a new graduate, where whether you're a seasoned manager or leader or CEO, or a change maker within an organization. It is such a helpful book to weave influence and become that in indispensable person in an organization, especially if you don't have authority, this, which I found so useful. But Bruce, you open the book with a compelling challenge. And I quote you here. Imagine that tomorrow morning, some high priced workplace consultant shows up at your job. This consultant is an expert on employee performance is there to conduct a talent review, an assessment of all personnel in the organization, including you. The questions they will ask, who is indispensable at work? Who is noticeably dispensable? 
Who are all the people in between? And what makes it harder for employees to succeed in their jobs? And what would this expert, most importantly, say about you? Now, those questions are intriguing for all of us. But even more intriguing, Bruce, I felt, as I said, for the people who work in change initiatives, whose projects are slow, who depend more on relationships than authority, this question you pose right at the start of the book is so essential. So perhaps you'll take it from there. Yeah, I mean, look, I go into organizations of all shapes and sizes uh, every day. Uh, and that's what I do. I'm always interviewing people and I want to learn like who's who in the zoo, you know, uh, and, and and what's going on around here. And, uh, you know, if people are leaving, I want to figure out why are people leaving? Um, if, if the wrong people are leaving, I want to figure out why are the wrong people leaving? If productivity isn't high enough, if, if there are too many errors or um, to the point of innovation, you know, many organizations, uh, their pipeline of new product development, uh, or even if it's just internal process, um, you know, something as, as, as uh, simple uh, as an ERP. Oh, we're do- oh, no problem. That'll be easy, right? You know, which turns into a nightmare for people for two years. And yet it's critical to align the, uh, the systems of, of the organization so that uh, there's less waste and more efficiency. Uh, so when I go into an organization, you know, I'm not an expert on the computer systems. Uh, I'm, I'm not an expert on supply chain. Uh, I'm, I, you know, there's so many things going on. I zero in on the people, right? What role is being played uh, by the people, uh, by the lines of communication? Uh, what's going on with the working relationships? And, um, you know, what people say to me over and over and over again, and this was true before the pandemic, by the way, uh, I did not write this book for the pandemic era, uh, although it came out in the midst of the pandemic. But everywhere I go, what people say to me is, well, look, you know, uh, everyone is coming to me with requests. Yes, I serve my boss. Uh, Yes, if I have direct reports, I have to uh, keep them going in the right direction. And I rely on them and they rely on me. But I've also got people inside the organization, you know, sometimes if it's a big organization, people I've never even heard of, people I don't even know are reaching out to me. Um, I hear from people inside, outside, upside down and, you know, every which way. Um, So, you know, the complexity of work and and, and then the real thing that people are, are most concerned about is I have to rely on so many people. Uh, who are also being inundated by requests, right? It's, so, so as much as people feel uh, inundated by requests and like they're uh, uh, always wrestling with overcommitment, uh, you know, the flip side of that, the way a lot of people experience this is they're relying on other people who are also overcommitted, right? So it's like, you know, well, I need to get such and such from so-and-so but that person is is super busy. That person has other competing priorities. And again, sometimes that person doesn't even know me, right? So uh, what I hear from people all the time is, look, as, as, as difficult as direct supervisory relationships can be, right? As difficult as it can be to manage people uh, in today's environment, as difficult as it can be to manage your boss in today's environment, 
at least the lines of authority in those relationships are clear, right? What, what, what people I think are wrestling with more and more uh, is that they have to contend with and navigate so many relationships with folks where the lines of authority are not clear, right? Like, is that my job? Well, you're not my boss. Well, gee, if I do that for you, then I might disappoint my boss on something else, right? So, so, so in an environment where people have too much to do and not enough time, we're all relying on each other. And by the way, in, in the C-suite, what are we trying to do? Cut waste, improve efficiency, increase productivity, and push decision-making down the chain of command. Well, then people down the chain of command are like, well, you know, but I don't have the authority or the resources to make these decisions. And if I do make these decisions, I don't have the power to enforce them. So the, uh, you know, so, so, so what's happening is, look, it's getting harder and harder and harder uh, to manage. It's getting harder and harder to get things done. Uh, people are working better and better and better, faster and faster and faster. And the response is, okay, let's do even more and more and more, better and better and better and faster and faster and faster. And it's just, you know, the pace is incredible. And by the way, it's not an accident that so many people right now are feeling burned out. Yeah, it's it's a huge point. And it's one of the reasons I was so grateful to have you on the show. And it was so valuable to read the book. Because I, I do executive coaching, Bruce, and I and this comes up an awful lot, and particularly down the organization. At, at leadership level, people have leadership coaches, and the leadership coach will say you need to delegate more. But then they delegate down. And then the person down there can't say no, because of what you said, the authority, but because of what you call the collaboration revolution, everybody's dragging on that person from all over the organization, and they don't know who to say no to, or they say yes, and a messy yes, as you call it. So everybody's dragged in each way. And I pulled a quote here, you say, it's the irony of ironies, because the person who usually gets delegated to gets delegated to because they're great, they're a go to person. But that person becomes anything but the go to person because of overcommitment syndrome. The process of trying to become indispensable too often means stretching oneself beyond human capacity, so that priorities become muddled, important tasks are left undone or done inefficiently. All of this might leave us wondering what all this collaboration business is going to when it's all going to blow over, so that we can get back to doing the basics. And this is so important, Bruce, for this audience of this show, because oftentimes they're wondering, why won't the organization innovate more? Why can't we be more inventive and come up with great ideas? And I say, mainly because of time, people don't have the time, or they're inefficient with their time. I think that's absolutely right. I mean, look, you know, what's interesting to me is, and as you say, it's ironic that, you know, uh, uh, this is a problem that vexes self-starting high performers the most. Uh, it, it, you know, this isn't a problem that losers struggle with, right? Because, oh, oh hey, I, I don't work very hard. Well, guess what? People stop going to you, right? I'm not that good at my job anyway. Well, people don't go to you. I have a bad attitude. Somebody comes to me and I'm like, get away from me. Well, people stop going to you, right? So it's precisely people who are really good at their job, people who work really hard, people who have a great attitude that, you know, people want to go to them. And the thing is, if everyone's going to you, pretty soon your biggest challenge is that everyone's going to you. 
so it's 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 a really interesting situation. And what we find um, is that yeah, being great at your job and working hard and having a good attitude, those are table stakes, man. You know, and then the people who really set themselves apart are the ones who are great at managing themselves and great at managing these interdependent relationships with others. And you have to play a longer game. Uh, so, you know, if you, one of the ways to think about this is you say it's all about time. It is, it's about time and timing, right? Because uh, it, it is about time because if you make the wrong commitments, if you find yourself overcommitted, here's what happens, right? It's, it's, it's not a zero sum game uh, because if you, if you make the wrong commitments, if you find yourself overcommitted, then you're, you, what you end up doing is having unnecessary problems occur, having problems that should be easily solved, but get out of control, having resources not well planned, so you squander resources. Uh, going in the wrong direction or not taking the time to help other people go in the right direction. Uh, you, you end up uh, delegating the wrong things or accepting delegations incompletely. Uh, so what happens is, so all of those things cause unnecessary time uh, uh, sucks, right? Because if you have an unnecessary problem, it takes time to fix it and then bounce back from it. If a problem gets out of control, it takes time to solve it and bounce back from it. If resources are squandered, it takes time. If people go in the wrong direction, it takes time. So, so, so what's funny is about time, right, is that if you handle your time well, it's not just that you get, you know, you get the most important things done but you spend your time in high leverage ways because you avoid unnecessary problems. And that's actually like a time factor, right? The other thing is timing, that you have to do things at the right time. Uh, you, you, you know, if, if you're gonna make bread, you have to make the dough first and give it a chance to rise. Uh, or, you know, the example I use in the book is from an emergency room nurse. You have to check and make sure somebody's got a pulse and that their airway is clear because otherwise everything else you do, the person's going to run out of steam, right? So, so you, you, you have to, it's, it's time and time efficiency and time efficacy, right? High leverage time, but it's also timing. It's doing the right things in the right order. And so what we find is that the most effective people in this environment uh, navigating uh, this, this perpetual challenge of potential overcommitment and navigating all of these complex relationships, that, that slowing down is one of the first keys to success. Slow down and focus, right? So, so uh, it's, it, and, and the people who handle this the best are not the ones who run around like crazy trying to please everyone. They're the ones who focus like a laser beam on doing the right things at the right time in the right order. They, they, they exhibit patience in a certain way um, uh, and, and they make good decisions, right? Good decisions about what to do, when to do it, how to do it. Um, and so, you know, when I go into an organization, one of the things I ask people is, hey, if, if everyone else, you know, like couldn't make it to work for a couple of weeks and only three people could be here, 
you know, who would you want those people to be? And, uh, uh, and then, and, and that, you know, I, I always want to zero in on like, who are, cause, cause I think indispensable, if I'm talking to a CEO and they tell me someone's indispensable, I say, oh, that's a business problem to solve, right? Cause that's a threat to the business, but to individuals, what I'm trying to say is, you know, indispensable is in the eye of the beholder to whom are you making yourself indispensable? Uh, and of course it's gotta be somebody who's good at their job. It's always somebody who works hard. It's always somebody with a good attitude, uh, but but there's more to it, and it's the people who are really um, uh, self-possessed uh, about how they show up, how they interact, what commitments they make, and how they deliver on their commitments, right? Those are the people who 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 build the kind of influence uh, that 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 really gets traction. And it, you know, it, it's one moment at a time. But it's a long game. And th this is so important. What you talk about is the it's the communication of the message to upwards across the organization and diagonally when it needs to go there. But for those people listening who are overcommitted, Bruce informs us multiple ways how to say no effectively and how to choose the yeses wisely and how to recognize a sloppy yes. And we'll come back to those, Bruce, because they're so important. Because oftentimes, when you're trying to please people and move up an organization, you don't want to say no, but then you become overladen. Oftentimes, you see this people have children, they're at home. The only time they have peace is at home in the evening, they're sitting in front of the TV, give the kid an iPad, try to keep them quiet for a while. So you can get through your email backlog, get some work done, because it's the only time I'm not being interrupted. And during COVID times, it's just been like the count the the diaries like Tetris, it's just email, it's meeting after meeting after meeting, zoom fatigue, teams fatigue, whatever it might be sets in. But I wanted to come to an earlier part of the book before we come back there, because this resonated heavily with me, I, I worked Bruce in a group role for a large organization with 40 separate brands. And I was head of innovation, head of digital. And I used many of the wrong methods. And I learned a lot from reading your book, I was kind of going, Oh, God, I did that. Oh, God, I did that. And this is the point. I actually had read quite a lot before I went into that workplace. But I, I didn't read the right things. And I didn't understand context. I didn't have empathy for others. And I thought that was very valuable aspect from reading your book was actually to go, well, what about that person there, there's so much on their plate already. And, and I'm coming and doorstepping them and giving them a new job to do. And sometimes they're giving me the long no, you, you've probably experienced the long no here in Ireland, where somebody won't tell you the truth and just go, I don't have time for this. So they just keep you on the hook for a very long time. They're trying to be polite, or they're trying to let you down easy, or they're trying to like, uh, help you figure out for yourself to go to someone else. But uh, uh, yeah, sometimes they keep you on the hook. Yeah, and, and you would have experienced that are particularly and you know, I'm sure this changes culture to culture, like you've seen in your international practice, Bruce, where some some cultures are more polite than others or think they're being polite and won't give you the honest truth. Like I'm sitting there after my meal and half my steak is left and the, the waiter comes over and goes did you not like your steak and i was like oh yeah no it was lovely it was really nice and then they go away and it's gone that was terrible and i won't tell the truth so there's a little bit of culture involved in here but back to this story because this is so familiar 
for change makers, and particularly those change makers who work in large bureaucratic and legacy organizations, and the bigger, the more difficult. And you recognized the in the interest of speed, we often go over other people's head. And we try to use the card that uh, Oh, the big boss wants this done, we better do it in case she gets angry, you know, there's a veiled threat there in some way. But in doing so we ruin the relationship. It's built in a siege mentality. And that actually destroys the relationship from the get go. And you say when you are drowning in other people's competing urgent and important priorities, you have a hard time getting what you need from them. And it feels as if nobody is in control of these interdependent relationships. And pretty soon every action, every interaction feels like a battle. You feel like you are under siege, so do they and overwhelmed by overcommitment syndrome and overcome by siege mentality, some people burn out, they blame the organization and they leave. But as you rightly recognize, they go back into another organization and the pattern repeats again, and they don't know any better. Others burn out, blame the organizations, but nonetheless, they stay and they remain permanently stuck in this siege mentality. And we wonder why there's so much burnout. Yes, sometimes it's the organization's fault, but we have a way to take power back and understand that thanks to your book, maybe you'll expand on this. Yeah, and I think, by the way, um, you know, uh, among the most common patterns is people who have cycles of they're trying to be a go-to person. So they say, yes, 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 until they're overcommitted. And then they start feeling under siege. So they start saying, no, 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 no. Maybe they even drop the ball a little bit. And then what happens is people say, well, you know, uh, that person used to be good, but now they're no good. Or that person, gee, I thought that person was really reliable, but they're inconsistent. And, and, and what's really happening is they're in this cycle of uh, trying to be um, uh, valuable, uh, taking on more and more. I'll do that. I'll do that. Sure. Yes, yes, yes. And, and then until they're overwhelmed. And when do they say no? When they're overwhelmed. When do they drop the ball? When they're overwhelmed. So maybe they take a break. They give themselves a break. See, a lot of people stay in this cycle in the same organization. And then they become that person who's inconsistent or, well, you know, sometimes that person's great. Sometimes that person's not so great. Well, you better stay away from them. They're over, overwhelmed right now. Um, and, you know, the, the, the people who are the most valuable, the people who are the most valuable are the, are the ones who are consistent. And, uh, and, and, and they're the ones who are really good at managing their productive capacity. And they know that over time, they'll be known for the commitments they make and deliver on, or else they'll be known not for the commitments they make and deliver on, and then the ones they don't, right? They'll become known for the, the commitments they don't deliver on, right? So it's, you don't become no, known for saying no, unless you say no to everything, right? Oh, don't go to that person. They say no to everything. Right. But if you become known as somebody who, you know, man, if that person says no, it's for a good reason. If that person says yes, they're going to deliver for you. And, and, you know, that person's always there to listen, pay attention, make a good decision. Um, but, but 
you know, you have to be really good at playing the longer game one moment at a time. And, you know, it's showing up with confidence and, and being willing to make one business decision after another, not on your own, not out of context, right? That, that, that's why, um, you know, the book in a way is complex. Uh, it, it's also really simple. Right. If you overpromise, you're going to get overcommitted. You're going to find yourself juggling. You're going to drop the ball. You're going to disappoint people. Don't do that. And if people are disappointing you, mark my words, unless it's like a loser, in which case, you know, you're just going to the wrong person. Right. But if, if somebody's disappointing you, it's probably because they're overcommitted. Uh, so it's not just managing your own overcommitment. It's managing other people's overcommitment. You know, not pressing for a yes if they can't deliver. Right. It's really seem it's all about managing productive capacity around priorities. And the first priority should always be make the dough so it has a chance to rise and look around the corner and avoid unnecessary problems. Right. So it's 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 high leverage uh, time and good timing uh, are, are two of the techniques uh, but ultimately, um, you have to manage your productive capacity and you have to help other people manage their productive capacity so you don't uh, uh, hold each other up and create delays and mistakes for, for only because uh, you're, you're trying to please people in the moment instead of trying to get the job done over time. So one of the things you, you highlight in the book is the difference between authority and influence. And then furthermore, deeper into influence, the difference between real influence and fake or false influence. So maybe you'll bring us through those because they're important aspects to understand. Yeah, I mean, one of the things people say is, Oh, I don't have authority, I, I can't do this. And then, you know, the, 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 the common refrain is, Oh, well, if you don't have authority, you just got to use influence. And, and people are always like, people will say to me like, Yeah, yeah, yeah. What the heck does that mean? And, 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 um, and so what authority is, is position power. Authority is rank in a particular organizational hierarchy, and it is marked, C. Weber, by control over rewards and detriments, right? So, so uh, a power authority, I mean, in, in the, the state is uh, a monopoly on the legitimate use of force. Uh, but extrapolating on that in an organization, it's the control over rewards and punishments, Right. So if, if you have position power and control over rewards and punishments, you have authority. By the way, even if you have authority, you'd be wise to use influence. See, influence, uh, it, 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 you know, you have influence when other people want to do things for you. Right. When, when you have influence, when you don't need rewards and punishments to, 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 to have people want to deliver for you. Uh, you have influence when uh, your influence lives in other people's hearts and minds. And sometimes when people are told, well, if you don't have authority, you have to use influence. What, th what they do is they're trying to get their way in the short term without having control of rewards and punishments. So if you're trying to influence someone, right, then you're probably on the wrong path. Right. Because if you're trying to influence someone, you're trying to get what you need without rewards and punishments. And almost always what happens, I call it false influence, 
is is people uh, borrowing uh, poor substitutes for authority, right? So badgering, right? So, you know, badgering is a classic example. I'll just remind you every five minutes. Well, okay, that's a form of punishment because that's really annoying, right? So, so if I don't do what you want, you will, you will punish me through badgering, right? Or bribing. Oh, well, if you do that for me, I'll bake brownies for you. Okay, well, that's kind of a poor stand-in for a reward. Uh, and also, is baking brownies a good use of your time? And in terms of the overall cost picture, you know, you know, I'm going to do my job. I should be doing my job because I'm doing my job, not because I want your brownies. Uh, some people will say, well, if you don't do that for me, I won't do things for you. Oh, well, that's not appropriate because I should do things for you if that's the right thing to do at the right time for the business. And by the way, if I need something from you, you should do that for me if that's the right thing at the right time for the business, not because you're happy with me or not happy with me. Um, you know, some people, uh, they form cliques, they avoid each other, they, they, you know, ringleaders emerge. So uh, um, if you think of influence peddling, right, it's, it's bribing, it's bullying, it's badgering, uh, it, it, it's, it's threatening to withhold support. Um, uh, these are all uh, some of the ways that people try to get what they need when they don't have position power and control over legitimate rewards and punishments. Uh, the irony is that it may work in the short term, right? If you badger me enough, I might do something for you. If you, you know, bribe me enough, at least I might feel sorry for you enough to do something for you. I'm probably not going to do it for the brownies, right? If you threaten to withhold support, I might think, geez, I don't need an enemy here. Um, uh, so, so it might work in the short term, but, 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 but it, it destroys your influence in the intermediate term because it makes me not want you to succeed. It makes me not want to work with you. It makes me not want to help you. Right. So so um, uh, so real influence is when other it's 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 when other people think highly of you. It's when other people want to be able to rely on you. It's when other people want to do things for you, don't want to disappoint you. And the way that you build real influence is uh, by how you show up, how you conduct yourself, how you treat people. Uh, and it, there's it, there's no shortcut to it yet. You have to attend to it every single moment, right? So 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 it's a long game that you play one moment at a time. And the irony is the the way you play it in the moment is not always by trying to please in the moment. The way you play it in the moment is by 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 doing the right thing for the right reasons in the right way. And then over time, your reputation grows your, 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 and, and so your real influence grows. You become one of those people other people think highly of. You become one of those people other people want you to think highly of them. Uh, and, and so that's real influence. So real influence is an incredible asset. And, and, and the more you really serve people, the more you really serve the organization. The more you really focus on doing the right thing, it might require sacrifices on your part. The sacrifice might not be working 24 hours a day. The sacrifice might be telling somebody, well, I have to do A, B, C, D, E before I can even think about answering your question.
or I'm not the right person for that, or, well, we're really not allowed to do that, right? That might be the right thing to do. Uh, and in the moment, it might sting, right? It might be hard for you to do that. It's hard to disappoint people. Um, but real influence uh, is a long game. You play one moment at a time. Uh, and, and if you ever find yourself trying to influence others, influence as an action verb, then you're on the wrong path. You're going to undermine your real influence over time. Influence is an asset. Uh, it's not an action. <laughs> influence is an asset. It's not an action. I wanted to point out one particular element of destroying a relationship because you point to a lot of things here. You mentioned finger pointing, complaining, blaming, undermining. But one I thought was particularly worth mentioning, and it's the flip side of the I'll scratch your back, you scratch mine, the quid, quid pro quo game. It's the freeze out because it's particularly relevant for change makers in legacy organizations. Because there's people who will hold a grudge, if you make a decision, or start an initiative that they don't like, or maybe the status quo feel threatened by this new initiative. And you as the change maker or the catalyst within an organization, head of innovation, head of digital, head of change, are trying to bring in this new initiative, and they will freeze you out and they'll make it clear they're not happy with you. Or they'll go behind your back and they'll poison your name and they'll start to do these type of things. And they really want to make you pay for disagreeing or going around them to come up with a new initiative that may challenge their department or may remove funds or people or whatever type of resource from them. But essentially, they're going to poison your name. And I just wanted to throw that in there. It's it's not a specific one that you point out, but it's one that you see all the time. You you allude to this in the book. Yeah, and I talk about the freeze out. Um, and, 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 and look, this is, it's going to sound familiar to anyone who's operating in the real world uh, that, that, yeah, if, if you make a decision that upsets somebody or if you uh, don't do what they want, um, uh, then, the, oh boy, will they try to make you pay? And yes, they'll badmouth you. Uh, the, and, and, and it can be really damaging. It can work, by the way, uh, because depending on the shape of clicks and the placement of ringleaders, um, uh, you know, and it, it's it's really sad to see because it can really hold back organizations. Um, and so, you know, my advice to individuals is uh, just be relentless and patient and communicate up, down, sideways and diagonal. Uh, don't go around this person, include this person uh, and kill this person's meanness with your honor and commitment and uh, and by doing the right thing, right? So so I don't think it makes sense to go on the war path unless this person's abusive or inappropriate. I mean, sometimes uh, uh, if if there's an individual in an organization who's been hiding out, collecting a paycheck, doing things the wrong way, and then, you know, uh, I mean, when I show up, those people, you know, hide in dark corners and hide under desks. And, you know, I start interviewing people, I go in there and I talk to them and they're like, what? You know, and I say, hey, I want to understand what you do. Oh, yeah, I understand you're the consultant. Yeah, all right. You know, and, and you know, so uh, I certainly have that experience. Of, I'm here to make things better. I don't want things to be better. 
know. <laughs> One of the things doing this show and reading widely ha has given me is, is that empathy I mentioned where I used to be very, I'd condemn those people and judgmental of them. And then I realized actually, they're a victim of a system maybe that they might have come into the organization full of life and full of ideas and then got the system got to them. Now I know not everybody's in that boat. But that's why I think intercepting people early with the processes and the ideas and the structures that you highlight in the book are so important because most people aren't taught how to do this. And then they're put out to pasture like you you recognize there. And they become disgruntled and angry, they hate their job, but they stay. And those people are like cancer cells within a, a corporate body. And they drag the whole organization down. I think that's a really good point and, and a, a great insight. Um, and, and, you know, uh, in one of my other books, the 27 challenges managers face, uh, challenge 26 is um, uh, helping somebody who has gotten into a negative pattern, helping them uh, renew their approach to their work and their relationships and, you know, breathing new life into, in, into their, uh, their work and their working life. And, and in general, I think, you know, uh, look, sometimes if you run across somebody who is resisting change, uh, what's going on for them is they're overcommitted already. Right now, some of them are hiding out, collecting a paycheck and just want to be left alone. Right. And, and those people, good news, they're not doing that much work anyway. We can just get rid of them. Uh, they're probably causing problems other people have to fix. And, you know, they're soaking up a paycheck and all that stuff. So, um, you know, we can free up that paycheck and uh, eliminate some problems that other people have been having to fix and make it clear that the message is not, oh, hey, you can be a low performer with a bad attitude. Uh, nope. No, you can't. You mayn't. Um, and, uh, but, but, but some of those people are just like, looking for, for, for a life raft. They're just looking for a hand, looking for some help. They're saying, well, gosh, you know, I just don't have the resources I need. Or, well, I've been, you know, I'm beating my head against the wall. Or, well, what do you want me to do? You know, I, I, I mean, uh, and, and when, so, so if you make it clear, hey, good news, I'm going to hold you to a higher standard and I'm going to help you meet it. Or good news, uh, I'm not going to play the quid pro quo game. I'm not going to play the mutual freeze out game. Oh, you're freezing me out? Well, let me be clear. Here's the value I add in the organization. And if you need me, you call me. You freeze me out all day long. But when you come to me, when you need help from me, if it's the right thing to do at the right time for the right reasons, I'm going to do that because that's my job. And when you conduct yourself that way in the face of people who freeze you out, in the, if somebody offers a quid pro quo, oh, well, hey, if you do that for me, I'll do that. For, I'll do this for you. No, no, no need. No, I'm going to do this for you because this is my job. This is the right thing to do at the right time for the right reasons. So, of course, I'm going to do this. And hey, if I need something from you, I would expect you to not do it if it's the wrong thing at the wrong time or not for the right reason. So, you know, let's just try to find some good ground rules uh, for how we're going to collaborate based on doing the right thing at the right time for the right reasons and not based on, um, you know, petty uh, uh, interpersonal dynamics. But, but I mean, to your point, I think 
Empathy is critical because sometimes the reason somebody's giving you a bad attitude is because they're just frustrated as heck. And if you show them, uh, oh no, I'm somebody you're going to want to do business with, right? It's, it's, it's like if you're dealing with a petulant child or if you're dealing with a bully and at least one approach is just to continue to be kind and mature, be the adult in the, in, in the relationship. And see if that doesn't start to bring out the best in the other person. I love that. And uh, it made me think of the, I think it's Gandhi's quote, be the change you want to see. So display the behavior you want to see in the future. But it also reminded me of uh, uh, a story I share in my own book, Bruce, where I talked about uh, when, when you have those people, and you, you obviously identify those people, and you may identify to move them on, that they need to move on. I, I do feel you're freeing up their future because they're stuck. And oftentimes they're stuck because of fear and they don't want to move forward. And I, I share this beautiful story and an anecdote about a famous prince and the prince buys these two falcons and one of the falcons won't fly. And, and so he, he has them in the palace and one of the falcons just sits on its perch all the time. And he's like going, God damn it, I'm after paying a fortune for these falcons look at that beautiful one and the other one won't move and he goes bring me the best expert in the whole land to solve this problem and they bring all these experts nobody can fix it and then somebody goes i know a guy and they go and they find this man it's a farmer the farmer comes along the prince isn't there next day he comes down after his breakfast and the two falcons are flying around beautifully he's like bring me the doer of this miracle and they bring in the farmer the farmer comes in and he's like, what did you do? Tell me, how did you weave your magic here? And he's like, oh, I simply cut the perch, your majesty, <laughs> and tips his hat. And he just cut the branch on which the falcon was sitting. Wow. That's how I feel about what you're doing there, is that th the person won't move, they're stuck. They need a nudge. And the nudge is actually sometimes the greatest thing that they can have. It feels like a crisis in the moment. And we've all had those moments. But sometimes they're the best thing you look back and you go, thank God, you know, thank God that was identified for me. I moved on, I found something that was empowered by and I was just stuck because we all get stuck sometimes in life. So that that's how I actually genuinely feel about those moments. I mean, look, uh, uh, it, it I agree with you that sometimes uh, you're not just doing a favor for the team and for the organization by relieving somebody of their livelihood, uh, but maybe you're, you're giving them the chance to go uh, do something new. And if they could fly so much, the better. Um, and, uh, uh, but it's hard, you know, you're, you're, you're making an involuntary decision. If you relieve someone of their livelihood, you're, you're ending their, their career there. Although I'll sometimes say, you know, hey, no hard feelings. Like you could still be a customer and then you can pay us and then we'll do what you say. <laughs> so you're sort of promoted. Like if you could be a customer, then we'll do what you say because you'll be paying us. It's just that we're not going to keep paying you to not do what we say. And be toxic across the organization. And, and that's the point. So let's, let's, let's get into some of the solutions because the book is full of solutions. And I love your turn of phrases throughout the book, the phrases that you've coined, the words that you've coined, etc. But you say, we need to know what's required and what's allowed up and down the chain of command before we try to work things at our own level. Because oftentimes, 
what managers do is they tell their reportees, work things out at your own level, don't come to me, don't try and go above other people's head. And you say we have to go vertically before we go sideways or diagonally to ensure alignment on priorities, ground rules, marching orders, and every next step through regular structured communication up, down, sideways, and diagonally. Here you give an example of a worker who asked their boss for help. The boss replied, work it out at your own level, like we said. The problem is, as you identify, we don't often have that authority to work things out at our own level. We don't always have the same agenda, and we have competing priorities and limited resources, not to mention multiple egos throughout an organization. So perhaps you'll take it from there, Bruce, and talk about this, work it out at your own level problem. Yeah, I mean, so one of the things organizations are trying to do is, is especially as there's more and more cross-functional collaboration, you know, if you have to float everything up the chain of command, then have it come down the chain of command, and then uh, uh, before you can collaborate across functions, that slows things down. So uh, there is a corporate imperative, right, to push collaboration down the chain of command so that there's more lateral information sharing, more cooperation, more decision making, um, you know, and, and, and the idea is to remove bureaucracy from that. But what that what the result of that is that then people down further down the chain of command are trying to collaborate. They don't always agree. So what ends up happening is since they don't go over their heads and make sure they're aligned initially, they, 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 they're trying to get things done. If they don't agree or things go wrong, then they go over each other's heads once things are going wrong or once they can't agree. Um, so what we found is, you know, where people are the most successful at lateral collaboration is, is those people who are really aligned first with their own chain of command. And so, yes, it is a, a, a very good goal to push information sharing, cooperation, and decision-making down the chain of command. But it turns out that only works if there's first vertical alignment. And uh, so, so uh, you know, sometimes people say to me, oh, does that mean I have to go to my boss every time before I make a decision? And I always say, well, only if you're not sure what to do. <laughs> only if you're not sure what your boss would say. See, the best bet, is to be exactly sure what to do, be exactly sure what your boss would say. Well, how often do I have to go to my own boss? I don't know. How often do you? The answer is as often as necessary to know exactly what your boss's priorities are, exactly what your boss's ground rules are. Before you start working sideways, you should know nine out of 10 times or more, what would my boss say? I don't know. Oh, well, then you better go check. Right. And, and likewise, when you're interacting with someone laterally, pay close attention because they might agree with you. And then, OK, let's do that. And then a day goes by, a week goes by, a month goes by. And then they're like, oh, yeah, I wasn't allowed to do that. Right. Because it turns out somebody is in charge. Right. No matter how much we try to push power down the chain of command. Oh, somebody's in charge. And, and, and so, uh, um, you know, but, but, but people ask this as if it's an unanswerable question. Oh, well, what am I supposed to do then? The answer is what you're supposed to do is make sure you're aligned. So um, every day, 
first person you have to manage every day is yourself, right? That means you get up on time, you take care of yourself. You know, ideally you take care of yourself the night before so that you're okay in the morning. And then, you know, do your exercise, have a good meal, whatever it is. And then, you know, once you're, 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 uh, you're working, right? Bring your best self to work. Make sure that you know, okay, what are my commitments today? What, what are my open areas of time? You know, what, what are my priorities today? What, and then, okay, what is required of me? If you don't know, you better check, right? The second person you got to manage every day is your boss. The third person you got to manage every day is anyone who has dinner with their family, talks about their boss, and they're talking about you, right? If, if you are anybody's boss, if you have power in relation to anyone's career and livelihood, you owe it to them to make sure they know exactly what your priorities are, what your ground rules are, what your marching orders are, right? And then, okay, if you have any time left, now it's for these sideways and diagonal interactions, right? And you say, oh, I'm all filled up with delivering for my boss and delivering for my direct reports. Okay. Well, if you get an urgent uh, and important request from a diagonal leader, or if you get an urgent and important request from a sideways uh, colleague, you've got to try to triage that. And, uh, and, and the only way to have the power to exchange information, to cooperate, make decisions, is if first you know what are the priorities, what are the ground rules. So I say if you want to uh, uh, get out of the horribly uh, 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 unproductive dynamic of going over each other's heads all the time, go over your own head early and often. Go over your own head early and often. Nine times out of 10, 99 times out of 100, your people should know exactly what your priorities are and what your ground rules are. And you should know exactly what your boss's priorities and ground rules are. Then, see, then you have an anchor. Then you have so much more power to interact laterally and diagonally, to make decisions laterally and diagonally. Vertical alignment is your source of power. Some people will say to me, oh, they say just, you, you don't have to be in charge to be a leader. Lead from wherever you are. And people are like, so here's what I do, see? I just, I just call them like I see them, see? You know, I just do what, I do what comes naturally. Somebody comes to me, I say, ah, yeah, I'll take care of that. Somebody comes to me, ah, I don't like you, right? I just do what comes, I do what I feel, see? I got, I got to be me. And then well, I prefer to ask for forgiveness than to ask for permission. Really? Why? Right? <laughs> Why would you do that? That means you probably did something unnecessary or did something that you weren't authorized to do. Right? I, I had one client tell me, oh, our rule around here is proceed until apprehended. And uh, <laughs> I put that one in the book. I was like, what? I couldn't believe that they were serious. And yet so <laughs> So many people conduct themselves that way. One of the things I realized over time was if you think lead from wherever you are, the most important uh, clause in that phrase is from wherever you are. You've got to appreciate context. Where am I? Right? Where am I? Lead from wherever you are is not pretend to be in charge. So I'll use false influence to try, I'll badger and bribe and threaten and bully and steamroll, right? Or, or, or quid pro quo or freeze people out. Because by the way, you can freeze out your boss too, 
right? If some people, the way they conduct themselves is if they don't like what they're getting from their boss, they'll freeze the boss out. Good morning. Is it? Hey, did I do something wrong? I don't know. Did you? Right? You know, so it's like, well, wait, 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 wait. This is passive aggressive stuff, right? So, so, um, uh, I, I, I think, you know, there's so much um, uh, that people do because we're these peculiar creatures, these human creatures. And really, it's rationality, it's logic, it's discipline, it's structure. Uh, it's, it's being the adult uh, and, and, and bring your best adult self to these interactions is, is the key to success. Bruce, on that point, one of the examples you share is a very common scenario where, for example, you're a, a resource within an organization that provides a service like IT, or one of my previous incarnations, head of digital, where we built internal apps and websites for brands. And everybody wants theirs yesterday. And that was a huge challenge. Because when you were dealing with that, you had to prioritize in some way, and w we had to find some way to prioritize because you couldn't just hire on mass and then because you were trying to build templates and get back end efficiencies, efficiencies of scope and scale, etc. And oftentimes what would happen is people would go over your head to your manager or the CEO or whatever. And I found educating the CEO was very useful, because the, the CEO could understand oh well, the reason we can only move at this pace is this now I can go faster if you give me more resources, hell yeah. And then there was a kind of go, no, no, whoa, whoa, whoa. And I was going, well, that's the only delay is that's what it ever is. This is the priority. This is how it works. And I found that really useful because you say that happens a lot with IT. You see that a lot with IT. I mean, IT is the classic example because everyone wants IT resources. Uh, IT is a hub and, um, uh, and IT is serving everyone. And it has its own chain of command, but everyone is their customer. Yeah, and then you, for example, in IT, you know, a lot of my clients are, are fintech or, or banks, and they have they're being attacked by cybercrime. They have to upgrade their services to compete with digital only players. They have a total recalibration of their business landscape. They're dealing with business models, etc. I have so much. It's more than sympathy. It, it, for IT heads of IT, because they're being dragged everywhere. And then it's like, oh, no, hey, my people don't have a new computer, what's wrong. And yes, there needs to be processes in place. But there's crises to be solved on a regular basis in a row like that. But there was a section that I pulled from your book that I wanted to share, because I thought it was so useful to understand this. And particularly for those people who work in transformation roles within an organization, or those roles that are often ne nebulous, and very dependent on cross collaboration across an organization. And this lie links to some previous shows that we've done, Bruce, where we talked with a lady called Shannon Lucas about her book about these characters within an organization called catalysts. And oftentimes, they can be easily ostracized or identified as not contributing very much. And I'm sure you've seen this in your role. And this is where you get ahead of that. And you say, we need to in every one on one in conversation with our boss provide a full and honest account of our activities, and account for exactly what we've done on our assignments for that person, if it's our boss, since the last conversation, or this could be somebody cross if I agree to work across the organization, I go, these are the things I've done, these are the dates I've done them, etc. And the second you highlight is to use self monitoring 
tools. T track your concrete actions by making good, rigorous use of project plans, checklists, and activity logs. Now, for me, I I hate that type of stuff, right? I I, I find putting the time into the admin is just uh, it's like it 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 drains my creativity juice, right? And I'm going, but Bruce is a massive point there because it prevents me being in a awkward situation where Bruce comes in and goes, what what do you do? And I'm going, uh, 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 I can't articulate it to you. Because and I go, actually, here's what I do. And if I make that a process, I actually make it easier to articulate what I do, and highlight my value to an organization. I'd love your your view on that from your expertise working with organizations, those people who work in those roles that are ill defined, or their projects have really long life cycles where the return on investment in those projects is hard to identify in the early days. People are creatures of habit. Habits feel good. The problem is that bad habits feel just as good as good habits. That's why they're habits. And uh, good habits feel great. It just takes a little while to make them habits. And so what I always tell people is, you know, you don't want to create a whole bunch of cumbersome bureaucracy for yourself. Some people... Uh, you know, uh, they 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 um, weaponize their spreadsheets. They weaponize uh, their task lists. They weaponize their schedule, uh, right? And 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 by the way, in order to do that, uh, you got to spend a lot of time on that stuff, right? So these are self management tools that double as alignment tools, um, and and so. Um, you know, I always tell people, give it a chance, right? Uh, if you're super busy, uh, it's worth making a plan for the day. Uh, if you feel like you have too much to do and not enough time, it, it's worth it to revisit your plan for a moment uh, in two or four hour intervals. Um, if you're really busy, it's a good idea to keep score for yourself, right? Keeping a time log uh, is it, it's not just a way to keep track of what you're doing. It's a way to keep yourself on track, right? So often people get distracted and they don't know why. Uh, they, 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 they find their time going away and they don't know where it's going, right? And it might turn out, well, oh, well, what happens is my boss comes in every morning and chats and that kills a half hour of my time. Well, to know that and get into a good habit for, okay, I know my boss is coming in at this time. Often my boss will be inefficient in how he or she communicates. So what I'm going to do is be ready with my list when the boss comes in, turn the conversation immediately to the alignment that I need, right? That's just a technique, right? I've got my plan for the day. I've got my list. I've got one, one question I always tell people to ask yourself is what do I know? Who else needs to know? Have I told them, right? Uh, and vice versa, what do I need to know? Who knows? Have I asked them, right? And, and, and um, uh, so, so these are just self-management tools. A time log can feel burdensome, but a time log ends up being liberating because if you're wondering where your time goes, oh, this is where it went. If you're trying to stay on track, it helps you stay on track. One of the most powerful techniques you can use is write the time you start a task. Now, this also has a psychological effect, right? Because you're telling yourself, I'm starting a task. 
So every time you, start, you, you, you look up or you start to be distracted, you say, oh, no, 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 I'm supposed to be doing this task, right? And, and, and if you task shift, write down, you know, note the time. Uh, this is a very powerful awareness exercise. It's a very powerful tool for staying focused. And if you get into the habit of, of using checklists, using project plans, using time logs, you're also keeping score for yourself. So you can, you're documenting what you're doing and you can over-report. By the way, with a lateral person, this isn't just to say, oh, look, see how busy I am. Right. This isn't, but, but, but if you want to say to a CEO, well, here, here's what I'm doing. So if you want me to realign priorities, I will. Or if you want me to add a priority, I'll need another resource. Laterally, you're not saying, oh, look how busy I am. I'm too busy for you. But you might say, oh, well, see, here's my schedule. I can make time for you next Thursday at two. Right. And then, so you see, right, right, right. Well, here's, here's where I had. Yes, I could do that for you. I'm an expert. I know that'll take me three hours. So I could do that next Thursday at two. By the way, if you want to speed me up, here's what I need from you by Wednesday. And then I'll do this thing for you Thursday at two, right? So, so, so it's a tool for planning. It's a tool for alignment. The other thing is, if you have good project plans, if you have good checklists, if you have good time logs, it also can serve to educate your direct reports, to educate your boss, to educate your lateral colleagues about, here's not just what I do, but here's how I do it. So I want to make sure that, this, is this what you need? Because here's my standard operating procedure, right? So this is normally what I would do. And they might, they might say, oh, no, steps A, B, C, D, E. I don't need that. I just need Q, right? Or whatever, right? Sorry, we're not supposed to say Q anymore. I just need R, right? Uh, and, 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 and um, you, you know, so these tools are for self-management, and they're also for keeping score for yourself, and they're also for alignment up, down, sideways, and diagonal. You mentioned their expert, the term expert, and that triggered me to ask you this question because a common situation is when our subordinates find themselves at the mercy of someone on whom they must rely, but has no real stake in their career success or the project success, perhaps. And this is where you tell us to heed helpers, experts and rogues. And perhaps you'll take us through these three definitions that you provide in the book. Yeah, I mean, look, I just tell people, you've got to stay focused on your priorities. You can't do everything for everyone. Some people, they get drawn in, they want to help, or they get drawn in, that looks like an interesting project, or they get drawn in because in the moment they want to please, right? So, so uh, 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 you know, and, and if you're a leader, manager, supervisor, you should be aware that some of the people who report to you who are great at what they do, who are hard workers and who have a great attitude, uh, other people are going to come to them and ask for their time. Um, and so sometimes you go to your direct report and say, hey, that thing you're supposed to be doing, did you do it? Oh, no, you know, something else came up. Well, what else came up? Well, I had to help this person with this and this person with that. And sometimes it's like, like a classic example. Um, you know, I mean, you're, you operate in a very uh, uh, sophisticated environment. Um, but sometimes, look, this might be in, in, in a production line, in a, in a factory. 
And, and, and so somebody like the machine isn't working. So they might go to uh, a mechanical engineer who's supposed to be working on something or a technician who's supposed to be working on something and say, hey, look, the, the machine's down, right? Could you fix it, right? There's no service technician around. You know, but I know you know how to fix it, right? You've been here 20 years, right? And, and so that guy, right, he can always come over and he's got like a wrench and a hammer and some other kind of like, you know, um, um, he's got some kind of meter and he hooks it all up and, and then the machine starts working. Well, you know, it, 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 the machines have to work, right? The line has to run. So, so, so sometimes what happens is, you know, it's not crazy that a helper an expert. Um, I sometimes call them rogues because sometimes they do that stuff just because they much prefer to be fixing the machine than to be doing what they're supposed to be doing, right? People get drawn into stuff. And a lot of times it's for really good reasons. But okay, so if you're a leader manager supervisor and you have um, a production line and you've got a, a, a technically sophisticated person who's supposed to be working on A, B, and C, but they keep getting drawn in, You've got to use that as data, right? So is it that that person would rather be a service tech, right? Or is it that really that person just can't get to his or her priorities because you don't have a service tech, right? So, so, so you got to tune into what's going on there, you know, because sometimes like I've had managers, they'll tell this person, I don't care what they need. You focus on what you need to do. Well, then the line goes down and then the COO is in there going like, hey, what happened? Your guy isn't even cooperating with my production people. All they did is ask him to get the line going, right? So, so as a leader, you've got to tune into the reality. You've got to use it as data. You've got to understand what's going on there. Um, yeah, but, yeah. but, you know, uh, understanding where that character is coming from uh, and why that's happening is really important. And one of the things you mentioned there was, say, the interruptions that we get. And I thought this part was really useful because you say we should add structure to unstructured interactions. And this is especially true when it comes to interruptions, those unwelcome questions or comments that someone drops on you quite right when you're in the middle of something else. This can happen when you're in the middle of a presentation or a meeting and somebody draws you off track and you offer some suggestions there. Yeah. I mean, look, we interrupt each other all day long. And part of it is because we're busy. Part of it is because we're human. Part of it is because we're, we, we, we have handheld supercomputers in our hands. So it's easy to just do that. Uh, send a telegram, send a telegram, send a telegram, send a telegram. It's very old fashioned, but very newfangled, right? Nobody's at their best when they're being interrupted. And so again, like one thing would be to say, have do not disturb zone. Well, you should have those, but what if the building's on fire, right? So, so, so you have to have a way of navigating interruptions. And you say, well, sorry, uh, you have to, I have office hours at four o'clock. Well, no, that doesn't go over so well. So what I recommend is, uh, A, pay attention to your most frequent interrupters. If somebody's interrupting you all the time, try to schedule a one-on-one. -on -one. Right. And, and, and so you might deal with the interruption at the moment of the interruption and then say, hey, why don't we schedule a conversation for tomorrow at 11 to touch base? Right. And, and, and so you have to train your interrupters to have more structure. It doesn't mean you ignore the interruption or you dismiss the interruption, but you take the interruption as an opportunity 
to then schedule uh, a more structured communication. The reason more structured communication is better is because it gives you a chance to prepare. Nobody's at their best when they're being interrupted. You have to pull yourself out of what you were doing, try to tune into the interruption. Really what your brain wants to do is get rid of the interruption and get back to what you were doing. Or else if the building's on fire, you get dragged into a whole firefighting mode and then your whole day is gone, right? So if the building's on fire, by all means, let yourself be interrupted. Somebody has to put out that fire. But what you really want to do then is say, hey, let's meet tomorrow and talk about avoiding those fires in the future. Right. And if somebody's interrupting you and the building's not on fire, you want to be polite and then say, hey, let's talk about this tomorrow at 9 a.m. or what have you. And so pay attention to who are your most frequent interrupters. Try to schedule a regular one on one with them. So you're prepared and they're prepared. Get ahead of those interruptions and pay attention to who you interrupt the most uh, and, and try to, uh, uh, do them the favor of putting more structure into those conversations. Instead of interrupting, write it down. Instead of interrupting, write it down. Right. And then, oh, we're meeting tomorrow at 10 anyway. I'll, uh, let me, let me put these in order of priority and talk about it in a structured way. Yeah, and, and again, it's a, it's a, a challenge for people who have great ideas or can think on the fly. Oftentimes they're like in a meeting and they're like, what about this? And what about that? And, they are in turn interrupting then as well. I've I've done that mea culpa. And when I was reading this, I was kind of going, yeah, I probably shouldn't have done that because I'm drawing out the meeting or I'm taking it off track and that's not the right place to do it. So you suggest as well, we temper ourselves before we become the inter interrupter in those situations as well. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And that's, you know, most of the time people do that with email and text and telephone. And when we used to be in proximity to each other, you know, poking their head in, hey, do you have a minute? Hey, do you have a minute? Hey, do you have a minute? Um, and, 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 uh, but the problem is that people get, Hey, do you have a minute all day long? And so, as you say, it's not until they get home when they'd like to be with their family that they get to do some work. Um, and, and, uh, so, and in meetings, it's a different thing, right? Cause in a meeting, say you got eight people in a meeting for an hour, that's eight hours of productive capacity, right? So make sure you're disciplined in how you participate in meetings, uh, because, you know, every word you say is taking up time times eight, if eight people are in that room. Well, you say as well, part of being indispensable at work is being known to run great meetings, being great at meetings, all those things become really important. And, you know, I, I, Bruce, I didn't say this, I, I have a practice of wearing a pin that tries to reflect each episode. And this one says, pointless meeting survivor. So the whole idea, the whole idea here is don't don't do that. Firstly, don't go to the meeting if there's no agenda, all those things that are in place. And then don't be the person yourself who provides those meetings without the agenda, without a structure, without the right people in the room, because there's nothing worse. Maybe you'll tell us just a very quick overview of meetings and email because this you dedicate a whole chapter to these things within the book. But I really want to share with our audience before you have to go the idea of filtering triaging yeses and triaging noes. So that that I, I really love that part of the book. I really want to share that. But maybe a quick a quick thought on email and meeting. Yeah, just and and so in the book, there's like a, a short piece on good email hygiene. Uh, just uh, and and we have an infographic at our website on good email hygiene. It's free. Help yourself. Um, and 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 the idea is. 
um, you know, make good use of email. Email, uh, you know, so if you don't reply all. If you change a subject in the middle, change the subject line. Um, uh, don't send off half-baked thoughts in staccato emails. Uh, so just practicing basic email hygiene. If it's a draft, send it to yourself, not to the person, right? Uh, uh, use instructive subject lines. Uh, CC the people who should be CC'd. Don't red flag things unless they are really urgent. Basic email hygiene. Again, there's an infographic. And likewise, uh, we have good meeting citizenship, both if you're running a meeting and um, and uh, for participating in a meeting. We have an infographic on that, too, at the website. It's free, totally free. You can't pay for it. Help yourself. Um, and um, uh, but 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 the good meeting discipline is, you know, have meetings for what meetings are good for communicating a bunch of information, to a bunch of people in the right way at the right time. Uh, uh, if people need to hear each other and respond spontaneously to each other for planning real interdependency, um, if you want to create a feeling of belonging and togetherness, uh, and if you want to eyeball in a meeting where one-on-ones are really what you have to do, right? So don't try to have a mini one-on-one -on -one in the middle of a group meeting. Uh, take notes. Provide a clear agenda. Uh, uh, everybody should know exactly why they're at the meeting. What information are they supposed to provide? What information are they supposed to collect? Everyone should walk out of the meeting with concrete next steps. Follow your agenda. Don't allow time wasting at a meeting. Uh, and, uh, uh, you know, so and, and, and try to prepare, right? If you're going to a meeting, prepare. What am I doing there? Why am I there? Don't multitask. Oh, the meeting's not that important, so I'm doing email. Well, why don't you focus on the meeting and make the meeting important? Well, the email is not that important. I can do it. Well, why don't you focus on the email and make it important, right? So, so, so play your role, show up and play your role. Um, and, and look, meetings are the bane of a lot of people's working lives. The reason is because the meetings are held for the wrong reasons. They're poorly planned and they're poorly executed. And I'll share links to those two infographics on your website as well, Bruce. But moving on to this, and I'm rubbing my hands together here because I uh, absolutely love this part of the book where you talk about knowing when to say no and not yet and how to say yes. And here you tell us we must remember yes is where the all the action is. You don't get lots of praise for saying no all the time. But every yes Every yes is an opportunity to add value for others and build up your real influence. But we can't waste our yeses. Here we must set up every yes for success with a concrete plan, a clear sequence, timing and ownership of all the next steps. I when you wrote about this, I, I thought back over my career. And I don't think anybody I ever dealt with ever did this. And I remember one person being very organized about next steps and who's going to do what, etc. And I was kind of taken aback by it. it was I was like kind of going, whoa, that was way overload. But actually, she was doing exactly the right thing. Maybe you'll bring us through this triaging the yeses, the noes and the maybe not yet. Yeah, I mean, so so look, uh, yes is where all the action is. So it's natural that people want to say yes to each other. The problem is you can't say yes to everything because you can't do everything for everybody. So you have to look at your uh, at your cues and your reactions. And you know what most people, the pattern is they say yes until they can't say yes anymore because they're overloaded. 
The problem is because you have a little bit of extra time still is not the best reason to say yes. The best reason to say yes is this is a high priority. You know exactly what to do. You know exactly how to do it. You know exactly when to do it. And you know why you should do it, right? So that's the reasons to say yes. And um, uh, and the reasons to say no, it's, it, it's very unfortunate if you're overloaded, but here's a really important thing to do. And you can't say yes because you're overloaded. Or here's a thing that would be great perfect fit for you, where you could really add value, might even be a great opportunity for you. But you can't say yes, because now you're overloaded, right? So so yes and no um, is, is where you manage your productive capacity. Yes is where all the action is. Yes is what you want to be known for. You will be known for the yeses you deliver where you fail. I mean, you want to kill your reputation No is not the way to kill your reputation. A bad yes is the way to kill your reputation. You say yes, and then you fail. That is the death of a reputation. If you have that, if you have, if you start to be known for saying yes, and then failing, delay, 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 right? Or, or you deliver and it's the wrong thing or so yes is really important. You have to protect your yes. Here's how you know if it's a good yes. This is something I should do because it's a high priority and it's a good fit with my expertise, or I should do it because it's a high priority and I can learn how to do it fast enough to deliver on it and add it to my repertoire, right? So, so, so that's, I should do it. Those are the reasons I should do it. And then I know exactly how to do it or I know that I have to press the pause button because I have to climb a learning curve and then I'll come back once I do know how to do it, right? Because a real yes is I know just what to do. I know just how to do it. I know when I'm going to be able to do it. I know where I'm going to schedule the time in my schedule. And I know when I'm going to be able to deliver. If you can't say that stuff, then your yes is, is a hope. It's a wish. It's it's. It's, 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 a, it's, you know, maybe it's not a fantasy, but it's a hope, right? So, so, so that's how you know. So, okay, how do you preserve your productive capacity is, um, you know, people are asking you for things. You're asking people for things. The ask is what people overlook. It's what people gloss over. It's where there's so much sloppiness. We ask each other for help, and sometimes it's not even clear we were asking. Right. We ask each other for help. And sometimes we say yes and we forget. We ask each other for something. And maybe I misunderstand what you're asking for. Sounds huge, but it's really little. Sounds little, but it's really huge. Sounds like something I can do. But upon further reflection, I have no idea how to do that. Or to you, it seems like I'm the right person. But when I look at it, I'm like, no, 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 that I'm not the right person. So, you know, but people say, well, oh, well, I, I, I got, you know, on the one hand, people say, well, I can't say no. I feel like I can't say no. I don't want to say no. Uh, on the other hand, you have a lot of people who say, well, we have to learn how to say no. We have to learn how to say no. Now, I looked into that. And here's what I've learned. The people who are the most polite, they say no with sugar and with a cherry on top, it's still no. 
there's no way to say no that that really sweetens it. You know, like there's no way to say no that's so polite that people are like, well, you know, okay then, right? The way to free yourself up to say no is to say no, to be right about saying no, to say no when it's the right answer, to become known for, gee, if that person says no, it was for a good reason, not just because they didn't want to or because they were feeling overcommitted, right? That if that person says no, it's because they t- took the time to really understand the ask, where that uh, uh, meets up with their ability, their skill, and their available productive capacity. And so the, the technique that, um, so, so, so I started to think like, well, what is it that sets people apart who are so good at navigating this? Right? So I'm really looking into the research and well, okay, is it that they're really good at saying no in some kind of special sweet way? Right, like, a, do you remember Star Wars? Like that, like the Force. Like, no. Okay, thank you, thank you for saying no. That doesn't happen, right? And and then you know, some people, well, they'll yes you until you go away and they deliver on what they want. No, people hate that, right? And then if you say yes, they don't know if they should believe it. Well, so and so said they were going to do it, but I don't know. You know, that person's inconsistent. Right. So so what's the practice that set people apart? It was the people who slow down and tune in to the asking process. It's, oh, tell me more about that. It's 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 so I, I the, the, the practice that I love to teach is doing an intake memo. Somebody is asking you for something at a meeting. If one thing you say, oh, we don't have side conversations at meetings. Why don't we have a quick one on one after the meeting? Ah, okay. So then right after the meeting, the person's like, hey, can you look into this? For, oh, well, let me ask you some more questions about that. Right? Tell me exactly what it is you need. Hmm. Okay. When do you need that? Hmm. Okay. Because uh, I'm probably, you know, I'm, I'm back to back to back today. Um, here, let me show you my schedule. See, you know, here's where I am tomorrow. I could do that Friday at one, but I want to make sure I understand exactly what's involved. Right. So you really treat people's ask with respect. You ask questions. You you ostentatiously take notes. Right. Because if you're taking notes when you're talking to somebody, you're telling them they're important. You're telling them their work is important. You're telling them that what they're asking you is important, that you're taking them seriously. Right. So slow down. And and by the way, uh, 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 this helps people clarify their ask. Well, I don't really need that. Maybe you said, well, well, let me show you my standard operating procedure, right? Because if that's what you're asking me, normally I do A, B, C, D, E, F, G. So I can do that. It would normally take me about two and a half hours. Is that what you need? Oh, no, no, no. I don't need that. I need this. Oh, okay. Good thing we're slowing down because I would have just gone and spent two and a half hours doing that. And you would have said, oh, that's not what I need, right? So so, so, uh, rework and wasted effort, uh, all this stuff can be avoided if you slow down and tune into the ask. Now, that doesn't mean you always say yes, right? But at least you're showing the person, this is how I respond when somebody needs something from me. I slow down, I tune in, I respect you, I respect your needs, I take notes, I try to learn, I try to understand. Just doing that, A, will help you make a better decision. B, will help you zero in on exactly what that person needs. 
C, it will teach that person to make better asks of you in the future. Uh, D, um, uh, if you say no, you will have demonstrated so much respect already that they'll see, oh, well, this is, you're not just like saying no, right? You're making a decision. And if you say yes, you will be so much more likely to be able to deliver what that person needs in a timely manner. Uh, so it's, it's a way of conducting yourself. What you're doing is managing your productive capacity and your ability and your skill in relation to other people's needs, right? What you're doing is trying to optimize your value adding, the use of your productive capacity in relation to other people's needs to add value. The way to do it is not say yes to everyone and everything. That is a fool's method. Right. And, 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 and you don't want to become somebody who says no to, oh, you got to say, we got to learn how to say no. No, 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 no. You got to learn how to say yes. And the key to learning how to say yes is tuning into the ask and knowing when to say no or not yet. And, and, and the ask is, and, and, and the due diligence and, and, and the earnest process. Uh, and, and then the making good decisions and building a track record of making good decisions. That's how you become somebody who has power to say no. I'd love to bring this to life, Bruce, with, with an example that you share in the book. Bruce peppers the book full of case studies, examples, people he's worked with, organizations he's worked with across the globe, industry agnostic. And one of the ones I found really interesting, particularly for change makers or people who are involved in innovation or change or digitalization in an organization is the following one. And it's because of the instinct of a change maker or somebody who's full of ideas within an organization, the instinct is usually fi fire ready aim, the whole idea of the lean startup, get it out there and see what happens. So we tend to move fast and try and break things. But you say, whoa, 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 again, understand a sloppy yes and a sloppy no, which is really important, because you say, a sloppy ask can do a lot of damage. Sometimes the ask is misunderstood, it sends more than it is or less than it is. And it sends people off in the wrong direction, like you identified. Sometimes the ask is not heard at all. It just goes into the ether. Sometimes people hear the ask and ignore it. Maybe if I ignore it, it'll just go away. And you call this ghosting the ask, which I absolutely love. But back to the case study, because this is really interesting, you call this one, a problem of process. And you say one Monday morning, the president of the Americas region of a worldwide consumer electronics company briefed the executive team on the marching orders he just received from the global CEO. It was develop a new blockbuster product that will be ready to launch the following year. This surprised no one. It was this, it was similar to the same marching orders last year, turned out to be an absolute disaster. So I'll let you take it from here and unpack it, Bruce, now that we have the lens through which to see sloppy yes, sloppy no. Yeah, I mean, this is sort of the sloppy yes, sloppy no, sloppy ask writ large. And, and, and this, this speaks to your world, right? Because what was this? This is uh, the need for uh, new product development, new product innovation, uh, and and why the salespeople are saying we need something new to sell, right? That is what they're always saying, right? 
Um, and um, we need something new. We need something really good. And so what it leads to is, uh, uh, you know, the creative innovator types, the R&D types, they've always got a baby, you know, or, or, or you know, uh, they, they, they're, they're, um, the thing that they're nursing is, oh, well, this is the thing I've been working on, right? So they're, they're all putting competing uh, uh, projects on the table. Um, what ends up happening is uh, uh, there's not enough guidance and direction and focus to the ask, then uh, you, you lead people down the path of trying to um, push their agendas. Uh, and, and, and if there's not enough due diligence, uh, then what happens is you have all these competing players and it can end up uh, with a very perverse result. So in this particular case, what ended up happening was um, uh, there was an R&D engineer who pushed his pet project forward. Uh, everyone sort of went along with it on his assurances. Um, and then, uh, you know, the whole time what was happening is the finance people were worried about the budget. The sales people were worried about where we were going to end up in delivery time and the um, and what was going to be the, 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 the sales price. Uh, the supply chain people and the uh, we're, we're worried about well what what uh, pieces do we need to order? The manufacturing folks were worried about getting it over the line so they could start testing and coming up with a repeatable production process. And so there was no alignment because the ask was so vague, it left room for uh, people to be advancing their own agendas. Um, and it just became, I mean, what ended up happening was there was a failed product launch and it, it was just a disaster. It was a waste of millions of dollars and bad for the organization's reputation because they put out uh, all these beta products uh, too early into the marketplace. It was a disaster. But this is a, a, a good example of where, what do you want to have? So um, you know, in a large uh, product development cycle environment, you have to have a gate review process. So you want to have proof of concept, rigorously uh, due diligence uh, on the proof of concept. Then you want to have uh, a move through the next gate. So you have, okay, uh, what are the uh, um, uh, uh, marketing requirements. What's the commercial document that where that's a chance to align all the competing interests? And then, okay, well, now we have um, a, a prototype that's gate three. And then, get, you know, you want to go through a rigorous gate review process. What that is, is a due diligence process on the use of all these organizational resources and to create alignment among all these competing constituencies. You know, the reason I use that example in the book is because everyone's been, uh, or not everyone, people, many people in the workplace have been part of that kind of cross-functional process. And they see it from the outside. They see it from the inside. I wanted to show people from the outside. But the lessons I want people to learn are, hey, good news. When you're managing yourself, you just have to do that due diligence process on your own productive capacity. Uh, so you don't have to navigate all those uh, uh, all those other players all the time. You know, just don't don't uh, go down the wrong path yourself. Uh, and but that's an example. Uh, you know, I, and I see that all the time. 
I mean, if you want to see an organization that's trying to put new products in through a development process, you've either got a rigorous process or a loosey-goosey process. I promise you a loosey-goosey process loses out every time, wastes resources and drives everybody bananas. Yeah, it frustrates the hell out of everybody. And Bruce, it's been such an honor speaking to you. I just want to remind our audience, copy of the book here up for grabs, just sign up to the innovation show.io newsletter, and you'll be in the hat to win a copy of this brilliant book. By the way, one of more than 20 books that Bruce has authored, Un incredible writer, bridging the soft skills gap, the 27 challenges managers face, it's okay to be the boss, it's okay to manage your boss, not everyone gets a trophy, winning the talent awards, managing Generation X, to name but a, but a few of those. Bruce, before we finish up, you mentioned there about the infographics available on your website. Where can people find you for keynotes, for consultancy work, etc.? Where is the website? Yeah, it's rainmakerthinking.com. Uh, and you know, you can find us at rainmakerthinking.com. There's tons of free stuff at rainmakerthinking.com. Uh, so I have a bunch of regular columns and stuff. You can always get those at our website. Uh, we have infographics, we put out white papers, all that stuff is free. And of course, the book, uh, The Art of Being Indispensable at Work is available at Amazon. Um, and uh, or, you know, wherever books are sold. <laughs> nicely done, nicely done. And Bruce, I'm gonna just finish up here. But I, I wanted to leave you to maybe a final message to our, our listenership as well, like your final call, what you wanted it to do from this book, what was your call to action? Yeah, my call to action is uh, uh, if you are great at what you do and you work hard and you have a great attitude, then beware. The number one thing that's going to get in your way is overcommitment syndrome. Uh, if, if you're a self-starting high performer, if you are a would-be superstar, if you are a go-to person, the number one thing that's going to get in your way is overcommitment syndrome. So get really good at managing yourself, play the long game one moment at a time, be stubborn about having a great attitude, be stubborn about making good decisions, be stubborn about managing yourself, be stubborn about managing your boss, be stubborn about uh, adding value, adding maximum value. Uh, by making really good decisions, playing the long game one moment at a time, practice becoming the person you're trying to become. Practice being the person you're trying to become. Author of The Art of Being Indispensable at Work, Win Influence, Beat Overcommitment, and Get the Right Things Done, Bruce Tulgan, thank you for joining us. Oh, thank you so much. What a, a, what a joy. It, it's been great crack. <laughs> nicely said man nicely said bruce what an honor man that was awesome thanks so much as always thank you to our partners over at zai zai is a global fintech building integrated financial services for digital native and non-native businesses check them out at hellozai.com and i'll see you next week